Hey y'all, this is May, and I want to welcome you to Crimes of a Decade, a Texas true crime podcast. This season, I'll be discussing murders from the year 2000 through 2009. Today's story is of a female murderer from 2001. So grab you some Whataburger and open that Dr. Pepper. Let's go back in time to the year 2001. The top song in 2001 was Hanging by a Moment by the band Lifehouse, and two outstanding book series had their first movie adaptations come out in 2001, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone and Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring. Another thing that happened in 2001 was the sound of a garage door shutting, turning an accident into a murder. Please join me in walking down Erie Lane. Texas law provides three basic ways to commit murder. The first is intentionally or knowingly causing the death of another person. Next is felony murder, which means committing a murder in furtherance of another felony or in flight from that felony. The third type of murder involves not a specific intent to kill, but commission of an act clearly dangerous to human life that causes the death of an individual. In the common law, this third type is known as depraved heart murder. And a jury had to figure out if this description fit Shante Mallard's actions on the morning of October 26, 2001. Shante Mallard was a 25-year-old nurse's aide at a retirement home in Fort Worth, Texas. On this October night, she decided to go out with friends to Joe's Big Bamboo Club in Arlington, where she danced, had drinks, smoked marijuana, and split an ecstasy tablet with her friend. Tittle C. Frey, known as T, before leaving for the night around 3 a.m. Shante wanted to drive them home, but T noticed she was still a little intoxicated, so T drove them back to her house. However, once there, Shante decided to get in her own car and drive home. One exit away from her house, Shante was driving on a long curve from East Loop 820 to US 287 in Southeast Fort Worth when she struck a homeless man, 37-year-old Gregory Glenn Biggs. Extremely shocked by this event, she decided to bypass the nine payphones and the fire station and instead drove straight home pulled into her garage and shut the door oh did i forget to mention mr biggs was still stuck in the windshield of her gold 1997 chevy cavalier his upper body was inside the car with his legs curled up and mangled on the roof of the car gregory biggs was still alive shante said she was sorry and then walked into her house There are many different versions of what happened after this, 
So I will start with the inconsistent stories and then go on to the most credible version. The first story was told at a party four months after the accident. It goes like this. She giggled about it and told the other women at the party that she was messed up on X and she hit a white guy. Then went inside, had sex with her boyfriend, Terrence, went out to the garage, and the man wasn't dead yet. Shante stated that the man was asking them to help, but that they just walked back inside. Shante advised that they waited until he died. The next story comes from when Shante was being interrogated. She initially told detectives that she had only two drinks at Joe's Bamboo Club and then felt funny and believed someone had slipped something into her drink. She would give multiple self-serving statements. She next said that a white homeless man staggered in front of her car and she hit him. She drove home because she was too afraid and distraught to think straight. She laid on the floor of her kitchen sobbing. She went out to the garage and apologized to the man who spoke to her, but she couldn't hear what he was saying. She claimed that she asked someone she identified as Vaughn for help, and he told her to leave and took charge of everything. She was shocked to discover he had cleaned up the crime scene and disposed of the man's body. She, of course, had nothing to do with that. Later, at her trial, her story changed. Miss Mallard then said that on that fateful early October morning, on Wilbarger Street, Fort Worth, she had called T. Frey to come over immediately. She would tell her why when she arrived. Yes, she said, she pleaded with Miss Frey. It's an emergency. T. arrived on scene to a hysterical mallard who jumped into her car yelling. Just drive, drive. I hit a white guy. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do it. I tried to pull him out, but he was too heavy. I heard him moan. I think he's still alive. Frey, according to Mallard's final version of the events, on hearing this, promptly turned her car around and drove back to Mallard's residence. There, Miss Frey found that Mallard was telling the truth. There was a backside of a body sticking out of the car's windshield. Frey urged Mallard to call 911, but Mallard refused. Instead, they got back into Frey's car and drove to her house and slept. The next morning, Mallard says she called her ex-boyfriend, Cleet Jackson, who met her at her house. Jackson later stated that he saw a man hanging through the front windshield into the passenger side floorboard of the car. Jackson touched the man with a rake to see if he was still alive, but the man did not move. He decided that they were not going to bury the body. Instead, they were going to put it somewhere the victim's family could find him and bury him. Jackson stated that he was not going to move the body by himself, so he called his cousin, Herbert Tyrone Cleveland, to help. Jackson and Mallard borrowed a friend's car and drove it to Mallard's house, where Jackson shoveled the body into a blanket, tied up the blanket, put the blanket into the trunk of the car, and drove with Tyrone and Mallard to Cobb Park. Tyrone and Jackson removed the body from the trunk, laid it on the ground, and took off the blanket. After leaving the body in the park, Jackson, Tyrone, and Mallard went to a car wash and threw away the blanket. This version is believed to be the most accurate, especially with T's testimony of the events. 
On October 27, 2001, two older gentlemen stopped by a fire station where firefighter Todd Breedlove was getting off duty. They reported that there was someone who looked dead in Cobb Park. So Breedlove drove to Cobb Park, saw the dead white male, and called 911. Brad Patterson, who was with the Fort Worth Police Department, arrived and completed a crime scene search. He noted that the victim's shoes and socks were missing, which indicated to him that a vehicle may have run into the victim. He also noted that there was no blood at the scene, concluded that the victim had been moved to the park and placed where he could be found. For four months, the coroner and the police department could not piece together the final moments of Biggs' life. His injuries were puzzling as they seemed to be consistent with a beating or a motor vehicle accident. The injuries suggested that he had been struck standing up. But yet, there the body was, in the middle of a city park. And it wasn't until they got a tip from a woman named Miranda Daniel that the case was able to get some traction. The tip came in after a house party that Daniels attended at Shanta's. That evening, Shante let it slip about why she couldn't drive them to the bar from her house party because her car was broken. Giggling, she stated, I hit this white guy. Miranda was very concerned by the statement Shante made and went to the police to tip them off. This was on February 15th, 2002, four months after the accident. Police had a search warrant for Shante's home and garage. When they knocked, Shante opened the door wearing a robe and upon seeing the officers, broke down saying, I'm not a bad person. It was an accident. It happened so fast, I've never even had a speeding ticket. Inside, they found the murder weapon, a gold 1997 Chevy Cavalier with the windshield broken out, and the car had been gutted in an attempt to dispose of evidence. Several of the seats had been burned in the backyard and blood stained the front passenger floor. Shante was then arrested for failing to stop and render aid, but was released on bond. Then, a week later, she was arrested again, this time on a murder charge with the bail set at 10000 But she was able to make bail and was released again. Two days later, however, a judge raised her bail to 250000 and she remained in jail after that. Before we get into the trial, I would like to take a minute and look back at Gregory Glenn Biggs' life and the Fort Worth homeless community. Gregory Glenn Biggs was born August 16, 1964. He unfortunately suffered from mental illness starting in his teen years. Biggs was a handsome young man who was voted most teachable his junior year and was also a member of the prayer club. He graduated from Evangel Temple Christian School in Grand Prairie in 1982. That same year, however, he learned his high school girlfriend was pregnant, so they married. But his mental illness started getting worse and scared her, so they divorced two years later in 1984. Gregory Biggs made it a point to see his son whenever possible after that. Biggs went to many psychiatrists who told them something different, his mother said. 
adding that at various times, manic depression and schizophrenia were diagnosed. Two years before his tragic death, Gregory lost his truck because he couldn't make the payments on it, which made it difficult to hold down a job. He became homeless. Homelessness is a real problem in our country, and Fort Worth is no different. Apparently, it is illegal for people to make food from their homes and serve it from their vehicles to the homeless population in Fort Worth, and the city plans to enforce this rule during the COVID-19 crisis. They have posted signs along their highways that read, COVID-19 alert, no gatherings, protect yourself, no meal service from vehicles. They are encouraging people to donate to designated shelters that feed and house those in need instead of handing food to those experiencing homelessness. In a 2018 study of the dates between October 1, 2016 to September 30, 2017, there were 6,701 homeless people served in Tarrant County through Continuum of Care, or COC. This is the name of the collective networks, institutions, and organizations that provide housing and services to people who are at risk or are experiencing homelessness. 54% of those were able to move from shelters to permanent housing, but unfortunately, 16% of those helped turn back to homelessness with seven months being the average shelter stay. During that time, 22% were able to increase or retain employment income when they left, and 49% were receiving an increase or retaining money from other income sources at the time they left the shelters. Back in March of 2015, the Center for Transforming Lives gathered a group of nearly 40 like-minded agencies to focus specifically on the interests of children. There is an estimated 14,981 children experiencing homelessness each year in Tarrant County, meaning that they and their families live in other people's homes, motels, or shelters, or sleep in cars. They often stay hidden in an effort to stay safe, preventing them from receiving the services that they need. This is how the Coalition for Homeless Children was created, to develop change to community systems so they work better for children and more effectively take their needs into account. But when Biggs was homeless back in 2001, there was no specific organization that oversaw the homeless community, but only two main shelters to go to, Presbyterian Night Shelter and the one Biggs frequented, Union Gospel Mission. He was known in the homeless community as a friendly man with goals to try and get out of poverty. He was working toward getting back to a good place in his life, according to his friend Rafael Gomez, whom he had met at the Salvation Army Shelter in Fort Worth, discussed going into masonry business together. Gomez had a car, but needed to save enough money to buy a truck. Biggs' mother, Meredith Biggs, told the Star-Telegram, I want people to understand that he was not just a piece of meat. He's loved, and he was a kind and decent person. That's the main thing I want people to understand. No one knows why Biggs was out walking that night and not in one of the shelters he frequented, but he was, and lost his life because of the irresponsible decisions of Shante Mallard.
I would like to introduce you to an amazing online clothing store, The Well Clothing Boutique. Shop at thewellclothing.com for effortless and on-trend pieces to add to your closet. Plus, there is always free shipping. They carry sizes from small to 2XL, and you can also find your favorite piece of jewelry at The Well to jazz up your outfit. Check out their Instagram at The Well Clothing. September 12th, 2002. Herbert Tyrone Cleveland pleads guilty to tampering with evidence and is sentenced to nine years in prison. As part of his plea bargain, he agrees to testify at Mallard's trial. January 8th, 2003. Cleet Jackson pleads guilty to tampering with evidence and is sentenced to 10 years in prison. As part of his plea bargain, he also agrees to testify at Mallard's trial. June 23, 2003. Mallard pleads guilty to tampering with evidence, but pleads innocent to murder. And this is when her trial begins. The case was not going to be easy for the two veteran prosecutors, Richard Albert and Christy Jack. They would have the challenge of convincing a jury that this was not a tragic accident, but murder. Prosecutors argued that when Mallard took Biggs home with her and closed the garage door where he could not be found or received medical care were acts clearly dangerous to human life. Defense attorneys argued that an omission failing to seek medical care was not the same thing as committing an act clearly dangerous to human life. Medical examiner Dr. Pirwani's testimony at trial is as follows. Prosecutor. Do you have an opinion as to whether or not the act of continuing to drive that motor vehicle with Mr. Biggs lodged in the windshield would have aggravated his condition? Doctor. Yes, sir, I do. Question. And what is that opinion? Answer. It certainly would have aggravated the condition. Question. And why is that? How can you say that? Answer. Well, He's not anchored well. Motions of the car acceleration, turning around corners, stopping, would shift the body and would cause more injury to his unsupported near-amputated lower extremity and perhaps increase his vascular trauma and injury. Question. Do you have an opinion as to whether or not the act of trying to pull him in or out of that windshield of that car within minutes of striking him would have aggravated him? Answer. Yes, sir. Question. And what is that opinion? Answer. That would also certainly cause similar types of increase in damage to the tissues. Question. Now, the very serious injury that you showed them a photograph of, of the left leg, were you able to tell whether any of that vascular tearing happened after impact or not? In other words, once the bone and skin are cut, can improper moving of the leg or the body cause further tearing of those veins and arteries? Answer. Yes, certainly. It's distinctly possible, sir. Question. Do you have an opinion as to whether or not the act of driving the car in which Mr. Biggs was lodged and into a garage and closing the door 
of that garage was an act clearly dangerous and to his life? Answer. Yes, sir. In the sense that there was no help asked, certainly. Question. Okay. In fact, do you think his odds of receiving help would have been better if he had been left along the road? Answer. Certainly. In an enclosed garage, nobody is going to observe an injured person. Open space, there's more chance somebody might observe a person and ask for help. Question. Or at least some chance. Is that correct? Answer. Yes, sir. Question. Do you have an opinion whether or not the act of driving Mr. Biggs to a garage while he was alive and leaving him in the garage and not giving him medical attention contributed to his cause of death? Answer. Yes, sir. Question. And what is your opinion? Answer. It certainly did, sir. Question. And the cause of death ultimately that you found in this case? Answer. The cause of death, medically, was described as multiple traumatic injuries sustained in the auto-pedestrian collision. Question. And the manner of death? Answer. The ultimate amended manner of death was filed as homicide, sir. The chair of emergency medicine at John Peter Smith Hospital testified that Biggs' injuries were very survivable if he had only received treatment. He further testified that no one who presented with similar injuries had died. An autopsy revealed that the victim, Greg Biggs, suffered a near-total amputation of his left leg and that he bled to death from his injury. When Shamte testified on June 26, her statements were very self-serving. She gave yet another version of events, adding that her ex-boyfriend had disposed of the body without her consent and that she had not reported the accident because she was scared. Her testimony was all about herself and how this offense had affected her. She talked about how the glass blew inside the car and stung her, that she was in fear and distress, and she also claimed to have curled up on the kitchen floor and begged for forgiveness. The defense sought a lesser charge of failure to stop and render aid. After less than an hour of deliberation, the jury convicted Mallard. At punishment, the defense asked for leniency. They pointed to her lack of criminal history and said she was placed in extraordinary circumstances, but that she wasn't a horrible person. The jury could have sentenced Mallard to as few as five years or as many as 99. They gave her 10 years for tampering with evidence and 50 for the murder. She was to serve them concurrently. tried to appeal her case on five points. They are as follows. In her first and second points, Mallard argues that the evidence is legally and factually insufficient to sustain her conviction for felony murder. She argues that the state failed to prove that she committed an act dangerous to human life. She claims that at most the state proved an omission and that an individual's failure to act cannot constitute felony murder. The state maintains that the evidence affirmatively demonstrates that Mallard did commit an act clearly dangerous to human life 
and that her act caused Mr. Biggs' death. The act of driving Mr. Biggs, bleeding and injured, to her house and hiding him in her garage caused his death. The court holds that the evidence is both legally and factually sufficient to support Mallard's conviction for felony murder. They overrule Mallard's first and second points. In her third and fourth points, Mallard contends that the trial court erred by overruling her objection to the inclusion of the definition of transferred intent in the charge and by charging the jury on concurrent causation. The state argues that the trial court properly charged the jury and that, alternatively, any harm was not egregious. The jury charge included the following abstract definition of transferred intent. A person is nevertheless criminally responsible for causing a result if the only difference between what actually occurred and what she desired, contemplated, or risked is that a different offense was committed. The charge did not include an application paragraph incorporating the transferred intent definition. During closing arguments, the prosecutor explained to the jurors that they could reach the lesser included offense only if they unanimously found Mallard not guilty of felony murder. The plain language of the charge, likewise, instructed the jury to proceed to consider the lesser included offense of failure to stop and render aid only if they acquitted Mallard of murder. We assume that the jury followed the given instructions, and there is no showing that the jury did not follow them, so they overruled Mallard's third point. The jury charge in question included the following abstract definition of concurrent causation. A person is criminally responsible if the result would not have occurred but for her act, operating either alone or concurrently with another cause. Unless the concurrent cause was clearly sufficient to produce the result and the act of the defendant clearly insufficient. Accordingly, Mallard was not egregiously harmed by the inclusion of an abstract definition of concurrent causation. They overruled Mallard's fourth point. In her fifth point, Mallard asserts that the trial court erred by overruling her request for a mistrial after the state allegedly commented on her post-arrest silence during the punishment phase of trial. The state responds that the objection was untimely. Mallard testified during the punishment phase. During the state's cross-examination, the following exchange took place. Prosecutor, Miss Mallard, I'm going to ask you some questions about your testimony. We haven't talked before, right? Mallard, no, sir. Prosecutor, may I approach? Your Honor, the court. You may. Defense counsel. Your Honor, objection. Your Honor, may we approach? At the bench, on the record, defense counsel. This is a comment on the failure that is comment on her ability to assert the Fifth Amendment. That's absolutely error. I do not want to call the jury's attention to it and focus on it, but I want a mistrial, and I want it right now. The court. Denied. Defense counsel. Your Honor, I want for the record exactly what he said. He said, you and I have not talked before, and that is clearly a comment on her assertion of the Fifth Amendment right. Clearly. Prosecutor, Your Honor, we just ask for an instruction to disregard if he believes that's what I was referring to. That wasn't my intent. Open court. The court. All right. Jury will disregard the last question. 
you may continue. Defense counsel, your honor, I renew my request for a mistrial. The court, denied. To preserve a complaint for our review, a party must have presented to the trial court a timely request, objection, or motion that states the specific grounds for the desired ruling if they are not apparent from the context of the request, objection, or motion. Here, Mallard responded to the prosecution's initial question. The prosecutor asked for permission to approach Mallard to show her an exhibit. The trial court granted the prosecutor's permission to approach Mallard, and then defense counsel objected to the question. Consequently, the objection was untimely. And because the objection was untimely, Mallard forfeited this point. Therefore, they overruled Mallard's fifth point. Having overruled each of Mallard's points, they affirmed the trial court's judgment and denied her appeal. Now Mallard is serving her time in the Murray Unit in Gatesville, Texas. She is scheduled for release in March 2052, but will be eligible for parole in 2027. This case has sparked much interest in the entertainment industry. The following is a list of TV shows that made episodes based on this case, including an episode of CSI called Anatomy of a Lie, a Law and Order episode called Darwinian, it was a subplot on the second season of Fargo. It was also a subplot in 911 and a subplot in the episode Gospel on My Name is Earl. It was mentioned in an episode of Drawn Together, and a parody song was made about it on the Russ Martin show. This case also motivated some movies such as Stuck in 2007, Accident on Hill Road 2010, and Midnighters 2017. Now, when I saw the episode of 911 where this was a subplot, I thought it was too strange to be fiction. And I was right when I came across this case. But my opinion on this episode or any of the others I watched to get a feel for how it was portrayed for entertainment purposes doesn't matter. But the opinion that does matter is that of Brandon Biggs, the son of Gregory Glenn Biggs. He had this to say about these dramatizations made about his father's murder. Film and TV shows inspired by the crime have been and continue to be adapted, though none quite as accurate as Brandon would like, he said. He's tried to go as far as suing to shut down production of the film Stuck, which was released in 2007. I walked into the Blockbuster store one day, and I mean, they had the video of it there on the shelf, you know, Brandon Biggs said. It was quite sensationalized and fictionalized for the most part. Now... Brandon describes his life as ordinary. He's a college graduate, married with three children. His family lives in Albany, and he commutes daily to Brownwood, where he manages the hardware store. Although he has forgiven Mallard, he has never spoken with her or corresponded with her. He believes his forgiveness doesn't mean she should not pay for her crimes. He bears no personal hatred in his heart. I want to say thank you to all the articles and documents I used for researching this case, including the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, 
Murderpedia, legal search decisions, and many more that I will put links to in the show notes. Thank you for joining me in another episode of Crimes of a Decade, a Texas true crime podcast. Please join me next week when we discuss a male murderer from the year 2001. And if you are enjoying this podcast, I would love for you to give me a five-star review on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. The reviews really help. And if you would like to get in touch with me, you can email me at crimesofadecade at gmail.com. Thank you.